So the series that, um, that I've been going through, as you know, I've been, if you've been with us for the last several weeks, um, as I've been teaching, I've been going through and connecting us to the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28 from Yeshua, the Great Commission, and how our job as disciple makers requires us to form character in Messiah, Yeshua. Not just head knowledge, but character in ourselves. Because head knowledge itself does not form character. It's a part of it, but in and of itself it does not form character. So we've looked at, in, in this series as we've, as we've been going along, we have looked at how very little character development has been done in the recent history of the body of Messiah, how we've mostly exclusively, not entirely, but mostly exclusively focused on head knowledge. But we've looked at how Yeshua taught us that the way to change our character is through love first. And then obedience will follow that love. So when we, when we begin to love God and receive his love, then we will obey him. Our, our obedience will follow him. And as part of this series, we've been talking about how it is the element of joyful relationship that really fills our tank and enables this character transformation as we receive the love of the Lord and as we love one another. We, we feel God's face shining upon us, as we, we've noted throughout Scripture, that it helps us to physically even feel that joy. Even, even physically within our bodies, I, I mentioned an example of, a, of a, one of my favorite songs and how I just feel, when I'm playing that song and singing that song, I feel differently. I feel God's joy in my body. We can feel that in our bodies. And filling us with joy gives us emotional resilience. It helps to heal us as well, helping us to recover from past hurts, from past traumas in our lives, and build those paths back to God so that when that hurt comes again or when a new hurt comes, we have that path back to God. We've built that, knowledge, that, that way, knowing and, and innately knowing how to go back to the Lord. When, when we do get hurt again. And we, we saw that how joy and filling our tanks with joy enables us to endure suffering as well, just as Yeshua did, who endured the cross for the joy set before him. We looked at how Nehemiah tells us in chapter 8, verse 10 of his book that the joy of the Lord is our strength. It fills us with that energy to keep going. And we've looked at how that joyful and deep relationship with God and with others is the perfect love. It's that form of perfect love that drives out fear. So I don't have fear in relationship with you when my relationship with you is based on the joy of the Lord. I don't have fear. I can, I can be vulnerable in that relationship as well and don't have to have fear that I'm going to be hurt by it. And that's, that's really important, I think, because... There, are, there is often times when we will hold back with one another, even in the body of Messiah, we will hold back for fear of being hurt because we've been hurt in the past, because we haven't always been trustworthy with one another, and we haven't always 
been able to truly encourage one another and love each other in the joy of the Lord that he's given to us. My desire, though, for us as a congregation is that we really take seriously this mission to build joy in God and in one another. And if we're going to be serious about the Great Commission, I think we need to do this. And in being serious about the Great Commission, the ultimate goal is that us as disciples and new disciples are formed into the image of Messiah. Okay, this is from Romans 8.29, that we are to be formed in the image of Messiah, Yeshua. So that's a goal of us. If we're serious about the Great Commission, about making disciples, about us being disciples, we are formed in the image of Messiah. And in, in this, we are returning to God. Either us or new disciples returning to God who tells us in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, that he made them, us, in his image. God made us in his image. And so, as we are becoming disciples and being formed into the image of Messiah, we are returning to the image that God created us to be. It's an act of restoration that is occurring here. So, as I continue in, in, to speak about this theme of joy, I want us to explore today the Hebrew word for joy and then talk about another Hebrew word, many of which you already, are already familiar with. Now, so for some of you here today, uh, some of what I say may be, uh, well, I already know this, and that's okay. It's not, I, I, sometimes I, uh, I hear messages and uh, sermons on things that I'm already familiar with, and, and I wonder, yeah, okay, this again. Um, but it's always a good reminder, I think. So you can bear with me if this is repetitive to you. Uh, for some, it might be remedial. For some, it might be brand new information. But we're going to talk about the Hebrew word for joy and, uh, and another Hebrew word that uh, we sang a song about earlier. Um, that word is chesed. So we're going to talk about joy, simcha, and chesed this morning. So my thesis for you, my statement for you today is that simcha, joy, is your fuel and chesed is your glue. It's your glue to being made in the image of Messiah. Simcha gets you started and keeps you going, and chesed keeps you attached in the right relationships. We're gonna, that's what we're going to talk about today. So, simcha and chesed, uh, these two Hebrew words, these were not familiar to me. Uh, about 20 years ago, over 20 years ago, before I ever came to Remnant of Israel, I knew very few Hebrew words. You know, I, uh, I had never taken Greek or Hebrew in my Bible classes in college. Um, you know, I'd read through the Bible multiple times. I'd been raised um, in, a, in a believing family, and I was familiar with a couple of the words from the original languages of scripture, but for the most part, I was illiterate of them. So if you had said the word shalom to me, okay, I probably knew what shalom meant, at least in the sense of peace, but I probably didn't know that it was a, also a greeting or a goodbye, right? So you can say it in, in both ends. It's like kind of like the Hawaiian word aloha, right? You can use it as a greeting or a goodbye as well. Um, I, you know, I, I was fairly illiterate of the original languages, so uh, the Hebrew class that uh, our sister Doreen teaches here um, on every other Shabbat afternoon, it, uh, it's, it's very similar to what I engaged in within about a year or so of coming to Remnant of Israel. 
And in that class, we went through learning the letters of the alphabet. We learned the vowel sounds. We learned the pronunciation of words and basic biblical words. And going through that class gave me some of that initial tools to understand what we use in our liturgy here, what we sing in our songs, you know, because oftentimes our songs, we have Hebrew words in our songs. Now, we will have, some of our songs have Hebrew words and English words, so sometimes it's a, it's a translation. Sometimes it's not a direct translation, it's just kind of something that's close, uh, it, but it has to sound good in a song. Um, but they kind of give you a sense of what we're singing about, though, when we, when we sing those that have both English and Hebrew words. One of those uh, songs I was thinking about this week is a good example of this, the song, Evdu Hashem Basimka. Okay? Uh, that song, that title of that song means, Praise Ye the Lord with Joy. Okay? Evdu Hashem Basimka means, you praise the Lord with joy. It's like a command. Praise Praise ye the Lord with joy. You praise the Lord with joy. And in that song that we sing it, we sing both, we repeat the English and the Hebrew um, phrases. And to the point that eventually, if you're singing just that song, you can kind of get the understanding, connect the dots that the English word joy and the Hebrew word simcha are more or less the same thing. They, that's, that's their translation, their equivalent translations there. So it, it took me a lot of repetition because I'm a slow learner sometimes, especially with languages. Languages are something that uh, you learn easily when you're young. As adults, we tend to learn languages a little bit slower. But um, I learned the connection between those two words. I learned a lot of other words, too. And, and I, and I want to say that as an encouragement to anyone here who uh, is here today and is still unfamiliar with a lot of the words that are used in our liturgy, we sing, as we pray. Um, you know, most people here, myself included, did not grow up going to like a Jewish day school where you're learning the Hebrew language along with everything else, you know, along with your English language, uh, where you're memorizing the Torah. Um, so we have to learn as adults. And that's okay. Don't worry about that. Understanding is going to come over time if you stick with it. And Doreen's basic biblical Hebrew class really helps with that. So plug for the class. Again, I keep plugging for that class. It's, it's wonderful. Um, in that class, I learned another word that I mentioned to you already. One of my, and this really is probably my favorite Hebrew word, the word chesed. Um, we use that in our liturgy. We used it this morning, right? We sang chesed lechem, ve shalom. Um, if you're going to use only that song itself as a tool... For translated hesed, then you would say that word hesed means grace. And you'd be partially correct. Because um, hesed, as we're going to find out, is a, is a very big word. And a small word. <laughs> um, it's a, and so it's a, I would say it's an incomplete definition to say that uh, chesed means grace. Uh, but you might be sitting here wondering, well, why am I bothering to dig into some of this original language in the text? So I'm going to step onto uh, an original language soapbox for a few minutes, and then so just bear with me. Because I know some of you have this much interest in learning Hebrew. Um, some people have told me that. You're like, I don't care. I don't want to learn it. Well, okay. 
That's fine, <laughs> I guess. Um, some people probably feel that original language study you know, is reserved for seminary students and PhD students, those academic scholars, um, not for everyday disciples. I would like you to give me a chance to convince you that it's not, though. Um, I'll tell you that most of your knowledge of Scripture, of God, I'm sorry, most of your knowledge of God is derived from Scripture, okay? And the accuracy of that knowledge is contingent upon the correctness with which you handle its languages. The accuracy of your knowledge of God is contingent upon the correctness with which you handle its languages. So God embodied himself and he revealed himself in those languages, not, not just in the body of Messiah to whom they point, but in the languages himself, themselves. And understanding this should, for us, drive a desire to more precisely understand the languages, the biblical languages, like Hebrew, like Aramaic, like Greek. They can help us to understand the Scripture. Now, most of us, we have very little time, actually, to become an expert in any or all of these languages. Um, but that should not prevent us from putting forth some effort, at least. Put forth some effort uh, towards some basic understanding that's going to assist us in, in our personal studies. I'd like to encourage you in that. And to encourage you in that, I want to share with you just a couple of examples. Um, there was a book published uh, back in the, in the late 60s, and... Uh, it was a book of daily scripture readings. In, and the, it was, they were readings in Hebrew and Greek. Okay? Uh, this, this book was called uh, Light on the Path. And, uh, and the readings were short. And there were vocabulary helps that were given with the Hebrew verses in this book. And the aim of the editor of this book was to help disciples preserve and improve their ability to interpret Scripture, to interpret the Bible from the original languages. Okay, this was, again, published back in the late 60s. Uh, that editor's name was Heinrich Bitzer. And Heinrich Bitzer was a banker. He was a banker. He was not some academic scholar. He was a normal member of a congregation. Yet he understood the importance of the original languages of Scripture. And he knew that people who don't study the original languages revert more and more to secondary literature to get ideas and insights into Scripture that they can't find out for themselves by digging into the, script, into the words themselves. I'll tell you, too, that Acts chapter 20, verse 7 it charges us with the proclamation of the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. And I will tell you that it is hard to know the whole counsel of God without some digging into the original languages. It's hard. And now, I mean, as in an English culture, and we have so many English translations, we get pretty close, okay? Pretty close. But not every language is like that around the world. Uh, we here in America probably have more translations of the Bible than any other language in the world from the original languages, I'll say that. So we get pretty close, but not everyone is like that. And so it's important that we have that ability to dig into the original languages. You know, as, as Joe said last week, the original languages are the ones that are inspired. 
And some translations are good, but not all are inspired. And he pointed out that some are nearly inspired, right? <laughs> um, another example for you, another encouragement for you. 1829, uh, there was a man, a young man. His name was George Mueller. And if you uh, might be familiar with him, I'm talking about the famous George Mueller, the one who is uh, famous for his faith and his prayer and his orphanages. Okay? In 1829, he was 24 years old at that time. Okay, 24, fairly young man, and he wrote, he said, I now studied much, about 13 hours a day, chiefly Hebrew, and committed portions of the Hebrew Old Testament to memory, and I did this with prayer, often falling on my knees. I looked up to the Lord even while turning the pages of my Hebrew dictionary. He was a man, a young man at age 24, so we would say that's, you know, barely out of college, and he's spending 13 hours a day reading Hebrew because he's, he's soaking in the original language and, and what God is teaching him in the languages of the Bible. Another person you probably heard of, Martin Luther. He attributed the breakthrough of the Reformation to the penetrating power of the original languages. That's what he attributed it to. He spoke against the backdrop of a thousand years of church darkness that did not have the word because the word was held by the, by the high church, okay? They didn't have their own copies. He spoke against that backdrop and he said, it is certain that unless the languages remain, the gospel must finally perish. It is certain that unless the languages remain, the gospel must finally perish. And he asked, do you inquire what use is there in learning the languages? And he answered his own question, and he said, Without languages, we could not have received the gospel. Languages are the scabbard that contains the sword of the Spirit. They are the casket which contains the priceless jewels of antique thought. They are the vessel which holds the wine. And as the gospel says, they are the baskets which hold the loaves and the fish and are kept to feed the multitude. If we neglect the language, we will soon lose the gospel. That's what Martin Luther said. So I'm going to step off my soapbox now. I just wanted to exhort you some to consider, if you hadn't already, investing some time, some energy, into learning the original languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. Doreen's Hebrew class is a great starting point for that. If you want to join in that, um, definitely will uh, encourage you to do that. My point with you today is that there is so much to gain from it. And I want to dig in a little bit to those two Hebrew words that I mentioned, simcha and chesed, this morning, to see what God reveals to us today and in the coming weeks as we move forward. So let's start with the word simcha, okay? Um, if we can show the PowerPoint on the screen here. The word simcha is four letters long in Hebrew. We have the, the letter shin, mim, chet, and he. We got it up there. There we go. Shin, mim, chet, and he. Um, this word is a noun in Hebrew. Simcha is a noun in, in that it's a thing or an idea. Now, most every Hebrew noun is derived from a Hebrew root verb. Okay, so if you study Hebrew, you know that the nouns are derived from a Hebrew root verb, and simcha is no exception. So it comes from the Hebrew root verb samach which is shown there on the bottom, samach, 
there, Shin, Mim, Chet. Notice how they use the same three first letters. So if you if you're just to kind of draw a line between the first three letters, because we're reading from right to left here, we have Shin, Mim, and Chet there as the first three letters, because the top word there is derived from the bottom word. Okay, so you have Simcha being derived from Samach there. And there's if you if you want to translate that bottom word Samach, okay, um, there's probably two English phrases that best describe it. One is to rejoice, and another word is to be glad. Okay? Those are two English phrases that we could use to translate the word samach. Um, and this, this root verb samach and variations of it are found 150 times in the Tanakh. 150 times this, this root word and variations of it are found. From this word, we get words like sameach. Okay? So when, when we say Hag Sameach at the holidays. We're saying happy holidays, Hag Sameach. So, so if you're wondering what to say at Purim, you can say Hag Sameach. Okay, that means happy holidays. You can say that at every holiday. Okay, Hag Sameach, though it's not really something we would probably say necessarily at um, the Day of Atonement because we're not really like happy, happy on that day. Um, but it's generally an appropriate greeting on the holidays, Hag Sameach, and now you know where it comes from. If you didn't already know that, it's this root word Samach. It means happy, rejoicing, to be glad. Okay? And as for this word Simcha that's there on the top, it appears in our Tanakh 93 times in some form. 93 times. And one of the more frequent forms is in the word Basimcha, which we use in our song, Eve Du Hashem. Basimcha, um, and, and that means with Simcha. The B is with in Hebrew, so the B with Simcha, with joy. Um, there, there's three English words that I would say best describe the Hebrew word Simcha. I used that one word already, joy. Another word would be gladness. Another word would be mirth. So even though it's not used in the Torah portion directly today, I can tell you that I would bet that Sarah, when she laughed when Isaac was born, felt some simcha, some mirth there. She probably felt that there. The first use of this, though, is actually in Genesis 31.27. The, the first use of the word simcha in the Tanakh is in Genesis 31.27. Um, it's not, a, I guess you'd say, a positive use of the word, because it's in the story of Jacob leaving Laban when he leaves with his wives and his flocks and his children. And he's running away from Laban and Laban catches up to him and he says to Jacob, he says, why did you secretly steal away and flee away and steal away from me? Why didn't you tell me so that I could send you away Basimcha, send you away with joy and with songs, with tambourines and with lyres? So Laban's using that, saying, I would have had joy to send you away. Now, whether he was genuine about that statement or not, we can debate about that, but that's the first instance of it being used. Um, the next time it's used is in the book of Numbers, chapter 10, verse 10. As God is giving Moses the instructions for using the trumpets in the assembly of the camp of the children of Israel, and here God says, it says, also at the days of your Rejoicing, and this word is simchakim, which means 
rejoicing, simchat kim, okay, it's a form of simcha, also in the days of your rejoicing, feasts and new moons, you are to blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and your fellowship offerings, okay? So those are the first two of many examples. As I said, this is used 93 times in the Tanakh. We're not going to go through all 93 instances this morning. I just wanted to share with you the first couple of them. And we can, but what we can do is we can also follow this word into the Greek. So um, we can see how this concept is used in the New Testament, in the Brit Hadashah. And one of, the, one of the best ways to do that, to follow the Hebrew words into the Greek counterpart, is to see what word the ancient Jewish translators of the Greek Septuagint chose to use. Because what happened was, in, in the time before Messiah, before Yeshua came to earth, there was a group of Hebrew, of Jewish scholars, who translated the Tanakh into Greek. And it's called the Septuagint. Now, were they perfect about it? I don't know, but we can have an idea of what they thought the best Hebrew word was for Greek in that time. And, and so in these two instances, in Genesis chapter 31, verse 27, and in Numbers 10, 10, <clears throat> the Greek word um, euphrosune is used there, euphrosune. And, uh, and if you look in the, t- in the New Testament, in the Brit Hadashah, this word is used in Acts chapter 2, verse 28. Peter's preaching on Shavuot after the Spirit has come to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And he's actually quoting from Psalm chapter 16, verses 8 through 11, and he says, You have made known to me the paths of life. You fill me with joy, Euphrosune, you fill me with joy, Simcha, in your presence. He's, he's translating into the Greek that same word that's used in Psalm 16. Later, if you go on, in Acts chapter 14, verse 17, Paul and Barnabas, they're in Lystra, and after healing a man, the crowd's like, oh, we got the gods among us. And they said that uh, Barnabas was Zeus, and, uh, and Paul was Hermes, right? The Greek gods. And Paul, he was going to have none of it. He would have none of it. And he immediately began to proclaim the gospel of Yeshua, saying about God, he said, he did not leave himself without a witness. He did good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling your hearts with euphrosune, with joy, with simcha, and gladness. He used that word there to them. He was, so we can see this word across the spectrum of scripture, the Greek word euphrosune, that the Jewish translators of the Septuagint used. This word it also comes from a, uh, a Greek root word. It's euphreno, which <clears throat> it itself being, is a compound word. So a compound word is you know, two or more words coming together. So two, two Greek words that, that form uh, euphrosune or, or euphreno is the word eu, eu, and frain. So eu means good, and frain means this moderation as regulated by your personal perspective. So basically it means that <clears throat> you have a good outlook on life, that you, are, you have a victorious outlook on life, that you are merry or cheerful, you're rejoicing. That's, that's kind of what that root word means in the Greek. So that root form of, 
of joy in the Greek. It's used 14 times in the, in the Brit Hadashah. Um, uh, the author Luke loves to use it the most, interestingly enough. He uses it eight out of those 14 times um, between the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and three of those times that he uses it are in the, uh, in the story of the prodigal son. When, in his version of the prodigal son story, when the prodigal son returns home, <clears throat> he uses that word euphreno, okay? that, that rejoicing, that joy, because there was real joy and mirth when that prodigal son returned home in that parable of Yeshua. Only Luke uses it, though. And he's the only one who, who uses that word in, in his translation. I thought that was interesting. Um, it's used by Paul uh, three different times, in, or once each in three different letters. Um, John uses it in his Revelation three times. And uh, in, 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 in Revelation, um, that same sense of joy is used when the believers see the judgment of God in the destruction of Babylon. And he says there joyful. They're rejoicing in the destruction of Babylon in, in the book of Revelation. So I think it's pretty cool this, this to dig into some of the, a little bit, I mean this is just a real shallow digging. We're just getting into a little bit here this morning of, uh, of the original languages here for the, this word simcha, see what's meant in those stories. I feel like it gives us much more character in those stories. It's a, a more fullness as we understand these stories in this way. Um, if we go back to that song, Evdu Hashem Basimka, that I mentioned, I wanted to think about where does that phrase come from? And if we go in our Bibles, it's actually in Psalm 100. So if you go there to Psalm 100 this morning, I want to read to you. I'm not going to read to you in, in the Hebrew. I'm going to read to you in English here. In the English, it says in Psalm 100, it says, a psalm of thanksgiving. Shout joyfully to Adonai all the earth. Serve Adonai with gladness. Come before his presence with joyful singing. Know that Adonai, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Praise him and bless his name for Adonai is good. His loving kindness endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. So, where was Evdu Hashem Basimka hidden in there? Verse 2, it says, Serve Adonai with gladness. I'm in the TLV version. Serve Adonai with gladness. So if we understand that Simcha can mean more than one thing here, we can understand that this could also be translated as serve the Lord with joy. Serve the Lord with mirth. Serve the Lord with gladness. We can understand that there is a fullness, a more more of a fullness to this. And so I don't know what version you're using and what you're looking at, but it probably has something similar to that in what you're what you're translating in, in your English there. In, in preparation for today, I was I read a commentary of a Torah observant Jew about this verse, about this this scripture, and it says, he said that a Torah observant Jew would say that serving God means to follow and perform the mitzvot, the commandments outlined in Torah and in the Jewish law. Um, he said, to be specific, there, are, of course, there are, we know there are 613 commandments ranging from the treatment of others to the laws of Shabbat and holiday observances and, and caring for 
other people, caring for the dead, taking care of the dead, and, and all of these, there's, there's all of these in the 613 commandments, and he said that um, in all of these, a Torah observant Jew would attempt to follow all of these, and for them, this phrase, serve the Lord with gladness, serve the Lord with joy, means that it requires that you perform all of these commandments in a state of happiness or gladness or joy. Okay. Now, I would tell you that there are, there are more subtle ways than just observing the written commandments that we can all <coughs> serve God. There are more subtle ways. These apply whether or not you observe Jewish law or even consider yourself to be Jewish. Um, when we choose to love God, when we choose to love God, by loving others first in the way that Yeshua demonstrated love to his disciples for us, then we are serving God. When we love with joy and gladness of heart, and I will tell you in reality, it is hard to actually love someone, to actually demonstrate love someone without gladness of heart. But when we do so, we're moving in that same Holy Spirit-led move that David had when he wrote Psalm 100. We're, we're in that same movement of the Spirit when we're serving others with love. So, parents, if you've had the privilege of parenting children, every single act of caring for your child or for your children fulfills what God wants from you, and therefore your role of parenthood is a service to God. The same can be said for teachers and other caretakers who are caring for children in the same way. You don't have to be a parent to fulfill that role. If you perform acts of kindness in your community or your neighborhood, every moment of that joyful thought that you devote to those acts of service serves God. When we're going to come together here in two weeks to, uh, to clean and, 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 and maintain the building and do some tree trimming outside in our congregational work day, um, when we do so with joy, we're serving the Lord with Eve, Du, Hashem, Basimka. We are doing that together. The Simcha of the Lord is in us, and it gives us the energy to serve God. It's our fuel. It's not, it's not a state that we need to put ourselves in, though. It is the, as the Torah-observant Jewish commentary would say, <clears throat> it's not that we put ourselves in that state, but it's the state that God puts us in as we serve. I can't force that joy upon myself. But I can receive it from the Lord. And if we all keep that in mind and keep the, the joy of the Lord in mind throughout every task, throughout every challenge in our lives, day to day, we're going to enjoy them more. And we will be filled more, filling our joy tanks more and filling it with the loving joy that God intends for us to have. Now, I want to return to a verse that uh, I mentioned in one of my previous teachings. I'm going to go back to John chapter 14. <clears throat> I, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. If you go to John chapter 14, verses 23 and 24 of John 14, it says, Yeshua answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. 
He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. When we, when we love the Lord first in our lives, then our joy, our simcha, will be in serving him with obedience. When we love the Lord first in our lives, I'm going to repeat that, our joy, our simcha, will be in serving him with obedience. On the other hand, if we do not love God first in our lives, then our joy or simcha will not be in serving him in obedience. Okay? I realize I just said, I just made it the opposite by putting the word not in there, but it's true. So if, you're, if you're not feeling the joy of the, of the Lord, the joy in things of the Lord, if they are a struggle for you, then there are probably some obstacles in your heart, in the way of you having the fullness of joy in the Lord. Your love for the Lord probably is not first in your life. If, if you're really not feeling that joy of the Lord in serving God. Because God is probably not first in your life. There are some obstacles in your way that need to be cleared out. So my encouragement for you then is the same that Saul gave, that the Apostle Paul gave in 1 Thessalonians 3. If you want to go there, I want to encourage you this morning. In 1 Thessalonians 3, Starting in verse 11, he says, Now may our God and Father himself and Yeshua, our Lord, direct our way to you. May the Lord also cause you to increase and overflow in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. In order to strengthen your hearts as blameless in holiness before God, our, our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Yeshua and all his Kedoshim, his holy ones. Amen. Says there, that's First Thessalonians chapter three. May the Lord cause you to increase and overflow in love for one another, and for all people. Cause you to increase and overflow in love for one another and for all people. This is the prayer of Paul for those believers, and it's a prayer for each one of us today. We should have that prayer, prayer praying for each other. It's a wonderful prayer to pray for one another. May the Lord cause you to increase and overflow in love for one another and for all people. And that word love that he uses there, that we are to increase in, to overflow in for one another. That word love, that's another problematic word in the English language, right? What does love mean? Do you love your french fries? Do you love yourself some Chick-fil-A? Do you love each other? Do you love your car? <laughs> now, what do you love, right? Um, there is so many, such a wide variety that the word love, that the word love covers in and I realize I'm going to dabble in this a little bit this morning. I know that a lot of preachers have covered this, um, so I'm well aware of this, uh, treading into these waters. I'm not the first, nor am I the last, but I want to have a, a, a small look at it because I will tell you that as you grow in love for one another, you will grow in attachment for one another. As you grow in love for one another, you will grow in attachment for one another. You will attach like glue to them. As you love people, as, you, as your love grows, you're going to grow beyond your mutual shared interests. Even if those mutual shared interests are your faith, your Messianic Jewish faith here, you'll grow to a bonded attachment to one another. And the Hebrew word chesed that I mentioned earlier in my message is as one of my favorite words that comes into play here as we discuss this. 
This word chesed comes from the root verb hasad, or hasad, and as, as you might expect, this word means to be good or kind. If we have that, we can go to the next slide up there. <clears throat> it means to be good or kind. Now, much of what I have understood about this word chesed is in regard to loving kindness and mercy and righteousness, goodness, favor, and devotion. Hebrew scholars, they, they admittedly have difficulty in really capturing the nuances of the word chesed into a single word in the English language. They, they have a lot of trouble with this. Uh, there's a really good example of this in, in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22, where it says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Okay? Now, this is, that's in the ESV. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Um, in the complete Jewish Bible, it says, the grace of the Lord never ceases. And if you look in other versions, in the TLV, it says, the compassions of the Lord never cease. It, if you look in um, the NIV, it says, the great love. The New Living Translation says, faithful love. The New English Translation says, loyal kindness. The New American Standard says the loving kindness. King James Version says the mercies of the Lord. A lot of different words in English for the same Hebrew word, chesed, there. It's a hard word to translate. <laughs> they are forever in search of a translation into other languages because it means so many things. And to me, still that underscores the importance of digging into the original languages. You can see what words are used there. It helps you to understand the breadth of the word that's used. And when we think about relationships, this Hebrew word, hesed, carries a sense of an enduring connection to one another. An enduring connection to one another. It, it reminds me, I was thinking about this, the way that... Uh, our late Rabbi John used to describe the relationship of three men, of Dan Jester and Asher Entrader and uh, Eitan Shiskov, as they, as they stuck together and formed the core leadership of Tikkun. He, he mentioned this story multiple times, that they could have gone their separate ways and done their own ministries, but yet they stuck together. They had a faithful, loyal love for one another over the many, many, many years, and they still do today. This word chesed, it describes an incredibly powerful force in our hearts and our minds. It is, it is the central characteristic of becoming human through loving and enduring attachment. Just like, and just like simcha has a Greek counterpart, Greek has a word for love, it has multiple words for love, but it has a word for love that attaches all believers to God and to one another, and, and that word is agape, You've probably heard that word before. That was one of those few words of the original languages that I did know when I was younger, agape. Um, yeah, however, it, it, was an, it was a really obscure Greek word until the believers in Messiah Yeshua started to use it. But it, it still wasn't sufficient. The, the very Jewish and extremely well-educated Hebrew scholar and apostle Paul, he found agape to be inadequate to convey what he meant in the Hebrew concept of chesed. I believe that's why he took all of 1 Corinthians 
13 to fill out the meaning of that word, what he wanted to communicate. That broader definition of the chesed love that God has for us and that we should have for one another. It was though he was trying to expand agape to include what naturally came with chesed. Um, in another letter, he en- enhanced agape with the image of a beloved child. When he said to the believers in Ephesus, he said, he said, therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love, just as Messiah also loved us and gave himself up for us as a sacrifice to God for a fragrant aroma. So he was connecting love with giving oneself up as a sacrifice. And he was connecting love to dearly loved children. Because we can feel that sense, that sense of love differently when we're talking about loving children. That's in Ephesians chapter 5, the start of that chapter. Um, he wasn't alone, though. Uh, in in other, other New Testament authors, they found it necessary to add adjectives and, el- and elaborations to this word agape. Peter did this twice, at least, in his first letter. Um, he wrote in 1 Peter 1.22, he says, Love one another fervently and with a pure heart. So he's, he's, he's talking about the fervency of your love. There's, there's a, a, a strength to that, a, a passion to that love, uh, to that agape. And later, that was in 1 Peter 1.22, in, in, in chapter 4, verse 8, he says, above all, keep your love, he says, keep your love for one another constant. Keep your love for one another, your agape constant. For love covers a multitude of sins. So he's He's talking about the constancy of our love, that he's expanding that word to, to mean what chesed already means. Because it's a loyal love that, that sticks with you. It sticks with you. So all, all of these expanded definitions of agape, which itself is a pretty specific definition of our really ger- generic English word love, it helps us to tie back to this Hebrew concept of chesed. This idea of chesed is such a deep and connecting relationship. That's what, that's what chesed really is conveying, that deep connecting relationship. It's a devoted relationship that does devotion. It doesn't just say it. It walks the walk. It doesn't just talk the talk. It does devotion. To me, it really describes our late friend Daryl Godinez. Um, we heard these testimonies in his, in his funeral uh, when we honored him and celebrated his life just over a week ago. When you do devotion like Daryl did, as you show devotion to someone else or something by your deeds, you're doing chesed. When you do devotion like that in love, you're doing chesed. So it's a good question for us today. Is chesed how we show love for other people around us? That's a good question for us today. Is chesed how we show love for other people? If it is, I would imagine that your relational bonds with those people are very close. The attachment is very strong, I would suggest to you, in those relationships where you have a chesed relationship. And in fact, brain scientists have figured out that attachment is the strongest force in the human brain. Attachment is the strongest force in the human brain. It's not an emotion. Although we feel it strongly, 
attachment runs much deeper than that, well beyond our, our, our willful control. Attachment is the best word that they could come up with, that scientists could come up with, for what glues people together and what glues little creatures to their parents. It produces an enduring care for the well-being of another person. It, it is a life-giving forever bond. With, it has, the, the, the brain has no mechanism to unglue it, okay? It, it doesn't. If God has an enduring, attaching, forever bond love attachment that for us that brings us good, because he does, because he has hesed love for us, the only force that we can understand that with is this loving kindness, this lasting kindness and care is this understanding of attachment, this permanent attachment. So we can kind of put these together, this chesed and this attachment, um, and understand how God, God's love attaches to, one, to us and to one another, and that we are to attach to one another. And I kind of had a hard time thinking about this, but I was, I was thinking about, like, what does this mean, like, in my life? How can I think about this differently for me? And I was, I was thinking about my job, because I spend so much time in my day, my day job uh, in aircraft. Um, we, uh, in, in, in the aircraft industry, in some of the newer aircraft designs, we often use composite plastic materials instead of traditional metals. And we glue those together. Aircraft are glued together, believe it or not. They are bonded together. Now, some of you are like looking at me nervous, like, should I even fly? Like, <laughs> is this a good thing? And I will tell you, it, it, it's not a bad thing, okay? Instead of being bolted together, they're bonded together with an adhesive, with glue. Um, when we bond two composite pieces together with, with that adhesive compound, with that glue, the strength of that bond is much stronger than any bolted attachment. It is well beyond, okay? Um, I've done material coupon testing. It is way stronger, okay? I, and uh, so feel good about that if you're flying in an aircraft like this. Um, it's much stronger than any bolted attachment. And when they touch each other and that, that glue, that adhesive compound is cured, there is no going back. Okay, so if, if we, uh, it, it is a permanent bond, and if, and if we mess it up, if we assemble it poorly, that could mean a scrapped assembly and a very costly mistake, because there's no going back when we glue those together. Um, it, is, it is a permanent bond. So similarly, you should understand that chesed has real sticking power. Okay? It is meant to be a permanent bond. God's chesed for us is the same way and as we should have for one another. And without chesed in our life, without strong relational attachments, I will tell you that our soil remains depleted of a nutrient that's essential for character growth in the image of Messiah Yeshua. Without that, you, have, you are missing an, an incredibly crucial nutrient in your soil for growth. So I'm going to close today. Um, we can, if there's someone in the lobby, we can go get the kids now. I'm going to close today and just remember that 
the, the, the love described by chesed is deep. It requires more than just a single word, okay? In, in English, you know, we use this word love. It's overused. It's lost its weight. Um, so when we come across love in the English Bible, we, we often fail to grasp the profound meaning of the word. Um, but this word chesed, get into the, into the original language of your Bible. Look for it. Look for it when you see it, okay? It's one of those words I'm going to focus on in the next several weeks, okay? I want us here at Remnant to embrace this word, this understanding of this concept. I want, as we restore the depth of meaning to the way that we understand God's love for us and understand the way we are to love each other, as mishpacha, with chesed, I want, I want us to dig into this more. So we're going to look into this more for the next few weeks. My vision would be that that this start in our close relationships with one another. So if we're meeting in our poorhouses, these sub-communities of our larger community here, we have to begin to do chesed with each other, to do it, to do chesed, to love one another and, and form those strong attachment bonds because they're vital to our growth in character in Messiah Yeshua. Okay, this is, again, drawing us back to the Great Commission. We are growing as disciples. And as these happen, this chesed is going to spill over into our larger congregation, into our communities, into our neighbors around us, into our neighborhoods and communities, because that's how we are learning to love each other. We're practicing it. And we're encouraging each other in the simcha, in the joy of this good work. And this is, this is super critical, too, because as we do this, God's going to also show us, unveil areas where we're really struggling with hesed and we're really struggling to love other people because there's sometimes there's other people that are hard to love that way in our lives. There's sometimes people are hard to love that way. So we need to encourage each other all the more. We need to encourage each other all the more in this good work. And that's one reason it's critical that we don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, because we need to encourage each other all the more. So don't just settle for a few hours on Shabbat morning. This is good, okay? Um, we, need to, we need to be getting together, though, encouraging, encouraging one another in community throughout the week, every week, spurring one another on in good deeds, practicing chesed with each other. And as we do so, we're going to fill our tanks with simcha. We're going to fill our tanks with joy. We're going to grow together in the image of Messiah Yeshua. And we're going to train other people to do this as well. And then, by doing that, we're going to fulfill the Great Commission together. Amen? Amen. All right.